Hey, here we go, here we go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Uh, Lent 3, welcome. Hi, Mary, how are you? Everything good back there? Ready to go? Here we go, let's pray. Heavenly Father, who sent your Son to sinful human beings and laid on him our grievous burdens, that we might know and see the glory of holy love as he goes to the cross, grant that our faith in him is not shaken by adversity or daunted by threats, but that we ever follow steadfastly in the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him, and so with you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, good. Hey, questions about anything? Got anything cooking? A uh, couple things for you. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think it's either Russia or if you want to go to Greece. To the what? Russia. Or? Uh, let's let's do the other. So let's go. Yeah, let's give money to Russia today. The Russians could use uh, a little love. All right. So if you throw money in there, it goes to the Russians. Thanks for doing that. Uh, a couple of things to think about on the fourteenth on Wednesday, the fourteenth. This uh, uh, young guy Ted Kuzak comes. If you want to talk about wills and trusts, I've been to it. I think I was to it a year or two ago. He's a nice guy. He's just kind of done it as a public service to you. You know, obviously he'd love to be your lawyer, but. He's not our lawyer, and he's not a member, so it's as far off as we can get and still have somebody that we trust. So if you want to come to that and um, leave $50 million to St. John, the 14th of March is the day. Let me know. I'll get your priority seating at the Easter Vigil, okay? Because I can be bought. Okay, so now here's a weird thing, and I feel nervous about this because I'm not a tax person. My spouse is the tax person, but we haven't really tried this yet. So... The principal at Grace School, whom you all support, called me and said, there's a new thing in the tax law. So I'm going to explain it to you according to their goals. There's apparently, and I haven't done it, so I should have done it, but I just didn't have enough time by the time I tried to talk it through. You go to this website. You register with the state of Illinois. You give a donation to a designated private school. So let's say you give $1,000, Okay. The school gets $1,000, and you get a $750 tax credit against your state income taxes, which I know you love to pay because they just keep going up and up. I'm sure that's why. Now, this seems almost too good to be true, right? So I'm looking for a victim who will find out if it's too good to be true. But the thing is, he called me and said, we're trying to get 100 people who will do this. I'm like, I could get 100 people at St. John to do this if I knew it worked, right? Because I think there's a pot of $75 million, and the thing is, when the $75 million is up, you know, what I don't want you to do is give $1,000 and then not get the tax credit. My guess is that whoever did the website is smart enough to stop it, but you never know, right? But uh, if anybody likes Grace and wants to run this, uh, let me know. I don't have time right now in the middle of Lent to kind of find 100 people, but I bet I could find 100 people in St. John, and then their problems would be over. So it's almost like too good to be true, right, that they'll um, quadruple your donation. That sounds weird, but maybe so. A lot of things happen when tax law gets changed. Has anybody done this for anything, for private school? I have to think that every Catholic church in Illinois is right on top of this, (laughs) along with, you know, Wheaton Christian Grammar and everybody else. So if it's going to be done, we probably have to move fairly quickly. It's not just us, of course. He's trying to get this from all Luther churches that support him. It does seem too good to be true. John Crow kind of went all the way just on the church computer to the point where you'd actually give the money. He seemed to think it was fairly well designed. If you do it, 
start with this, um, just follow the directions in the back. This is a lot of words because it's a church, and churches try to give you a lot of words. But if you just go to the back where it says the donation process, one, two, three, if you follow that. If anybody does it, let me know. Tell me if it works, okay? So, And if it does work, I don't know, maybe we should have a couple of beers and everybody do it. How about that? I'll let you know. Come on, you're not convinced? 250 bucks. This is pocket change for you. There's more than that in your couch, so it's all good. All right? All right, you ready? Here we go. Um, kind of think about, it's, it's probably we should turn your, you know, we've been, we've, been, we've been watching how Jesus encounters different people and how kind he is. The encounter I've offered you this morning on the icon is so different. It's a remarkable story that um, despite all that happens and how, how brutal uh, the Romans were against people who they considered to be rebels. For example, one of the Romans historians, after one of the rebellions wrote, they crucified people till they ran out of wood. And people used to talk about how around Jerusalem, there's not enough, you've been there, there's not enough, there's not a lot of trees, there's not a lot of wood anyway. But, I mean, it would just be deforested from, and you could walk in. I mean, when you came into Jerusalem, they would crucify people by the side of the road kind of as a warning, like, pay attention, obey, this could happen to you. They would intentionally crucify people along the road and at crossroads so people would see it, right? So, it's a difficult circumstance, but also unusual in the fact that it was common. And so you have this very strange circumstance where, even though Jesus is considered a rebel, one of his followers, at least one of his followers, and then some of the women, including his mother, are there. So this is a different way for Jesus to meet people. And what I want to do over the next couple of times is just kind of think through the seven last words again and try to understand. We've, we've seen how Jesus had met smart academics. We've seen how he's met rich people. We've seen how he's met politicians. We've seen how he's met outcasts, big sinners, people who have been left behind, people who are broken by illness. And now the story turns a little bit, and yet you still see how Jesus meets people, even from the cross, his mother and especially John. But also, you know, one of the texts says, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and you remember that later on Easter, Jesus meets a man on the road to Emmaus with the alternative spelling, Cleopas, right? And it could be the same guy. It could be that he meets his uncle, but because he's in resurrected flesh, his uncle doesn't recognize him. It's very strange. You know, so when you get resurrected, what will happen to you? You'll be you know, perfected in a way that you are only slightly recognizable, right? You, there's, you apparently have so much um, bad stuff to have washed out of you that, you know, when you're resurrected in your flesh, you're barely recognizable. But then once your eyes are opened, right, you have this great rejoicing. The Emmaus story, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave it, and their eyes were open and he disappeared from their sight. So you have this, this remarkable thing of engaging people whom you've known for a very long time, but you'll know them in a new way and you'll know them forever. It's a very interesting way to think about um, what comes up next. In any case, Jesus on the way to that spends some time engaging. But I want to do a couple things. One is I want to use that as an introduction to say, and I've been saying this to you for three or four or five years, but I can't get to it, which is we are going to put an icon of, and this has always been in the plan, of St. Mary on one side and St. John, the namesake of this church, on the other side. They'll hold the chapel, but if you think about this, um, when you look at the cross, they'll be in the places where they normally are, which is as you face the cross, 
Normally, St. Mary's always to the left and St. John's always to the right. The trouble is twofold. Every iconographer, when I say that, wants to, they start with a giant icon as big as a door, and then they always want to have a mural all the way across the top. Like, they, it's, they can't help themselves, right? They have to think about this ginormous thing. So we have to pick, we have to pick, and the other thing is, is to get just the right Blessed Virgin Mother, because as you know, there's all sorts of different, there's, from the East, Mary's often very sullen, um, and Jesus is quite divine. Uh, in the West, especially in the Italian tradition, Jesus is more warm, I'm sorry, Mary is more warm, uh, and Jesus can be young or old, and he can be pointing to her, she can be pointing to him, or pointing, we've got to figure out exactly which one. We may start with John on the other side just to get it going. So when that appears someday, when it actually works, don't be too surprised. Um, so in any case, let me just read you, uh, you, you sort of know the broad story, I think, and you'll get it, you know, over the triduum, you're going to, over the three days, the triduum or Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Saturday, you remember that this is considered one service in the church. So you'll come on, on Monday, Thursday, and you'll have a normal Eucharist. Uh, the Thursday text will be read, and then the altar will be stripped, of course, because the altar is Christ. The next thing that, uh, you know, and I think we just, at some point, we'll probably begin to kiss the altar. Good morning. You should have kissed your wife this morning. You know, I went to, I was in Collegeville at the monastery a couple of weeks ago, and I went to Mass in the day, prayers in the morning, and Mass in the afternoon. And, um, you know, they come out, and the first thing that happens is he greets the altar with a kiss. These things are just so normal, right? This is Jesus, so you kiss him. You know, yesterday in new members class, we went through the, you know, wild stuff at the altar. Well, you know, they're candles because the light's on. Jesus is home, and you mark territory with the smoke. This is Jesus' holy space, right? And church has a smell, Exodus 33, and you can't have the smell anyplace else. And then you ring the bell. It's a doorbell. Ding, 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 Jesus just arrived. It's like a doorbell on your house. He's here now. Ding, right? So all these things that happen together, um, they, they sort of all get bundled up. Well, you know that this is all coming. And, of course, at the end then, on Monday, Thursday, the altar is stripped because the altar is Jesus. So Jesus is stripped naked and washed. So you have it kind of compressed into one bit. Jesus is stripped. Um, and then this pause where he dies and then the wash. So you get kind of a foreshadowing of the whole weekend. In any case, that's one service. Monday, I'm sorry, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is considered one service. Thursday, he's stripped. There's no benediction. Friday, the great laments. Again, no benediction. No benediction until after the Easter vigil because it's one service. It just takes over three days. And these are the great three holy days of the church. And it's kind of good for us now to get some focus to see Jesus, even as he suffers, as in the icon, um, continue his relationship with people and people who are quite uh, broken and despairing. So I'll just give you a little bit. You, you know most of this stuff, but um, so this is from Luke's Gospel. They came to the place which they called the skull, and there they crucified him with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, and then Jesus first of the seven words. So this is just, I, I didn't expect you to look for this or anything. Just to remind you, Luke, it's Luke 23, 33, if you mind. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, which is kind of the indictment of the whole world. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing, right? And this is kind of the basic thing to Christianity. I mean, the basic confession of Christianity is we don't have any idea what we're doing, right? That we're broken in sight, 
in intellect. Your intellectsies were broken in sight. We're broken uh, in heart that we can't love properly, so we can't see properly, we can't love properly, and we're, we're, we're broken in choice, we're broken in will. So, right, the intellect sees, the heart loves, the will chooses. Um, classically, those things are broken. I can't see well, I can't love well, my love is disordered, and I choose things that are really bad for me. Right? This is what happens to you. Well, so um, when Jesus says, hey, forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing, that's all, con- that's all sort of tied up in there. People who are nailing them to the cross are just kind of the latest expression of that. But this is the sense when people are right when they say it could be you or me. People are horrible, right? It's Socrates who said, people are good. How can you explain evil? They're not well educated. Educate them and everything will work out. Hmm. That project was called the Enlightenment, and it didn't work very well the last 350 years. I'm just saying. That was the project from the French Revolution to the Berlin Wall, was that if we got smarter, we would get better. Guess what? We're better at nothing. Not at disease, not at the environment, not at genocide. Right? More people are killed in the 20th century than than all the centuries put together. Right? We kill people at a faster rate and a quicker, you know, we're not good at anything. So guess what? Maybe the experiment that if we just think our way through our problems... Right? No. The church offers an alternative, that we're all broken and thus need to be loved back into order. And when we're loved, expressed by forgiveness, then we can see clearly, we can love properly, and we can choose well. Right? That's all contained in this notion of, hey, forgive them. They have no idea what they are doing. Right? And then the temptation, and this is just a broader background of how Jesus engages people. You have to, you have to sort of remember this. They crucified him. Now I'm, I'm flipping over. I got a book that gives, so it tells the story the way the four Gospels tell it, but more chronologically. None of the Gospels are chronological or give every detail, but you can sort of work them together. So they nail him to the cross. In the act, forgiveness waits in advance. He says, you have to think about this. You know, people always want to know, do people have to apologize before you forgive them? No, forgiveness waits in advance. You're constantly forgiving everybody for everything, right? So Jesus, hey, he forgives them. They have no idea what they're doing to him. He forgives them in advance, right? The relationship is restored and whole from Jesus' side. Other people can do whatever they want, but from your side, your relationship is whole and restored, right? Because that's in the image of Jesus, so you see and say and do as Jesus sees and says and does. So forgive them, right? You wait for people to confess to forgive them. They access your forgiveness when they confess, but your forgiveness is already there. In the same way, Jesus is constantly forgiving, right? So, hey, they're, they're out of their minds, right? Forgive them. And they crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots to decide what each one should take. It was about the third hour, so it's 9 a.m., uh, so they crucify him first thing in the morning. And the inscription of the charge read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified him with two robbers, one in his right, one in his left. And then this very interesting thing. Now, the reason to read this is, this is what happened in Lent 1 when the devil comes to him. This is what happens in, uh, with Peter when Jesus say, Who do men say that I am? You're a prophet. You're a king. Who do you say that I am? You're Christ. And then, but the very next thing, Peter says is, you'll never get crucified. So, so the temptation is the same. In the first week of Lent, when Jesus is baptized and driven out into the desert, Satan comes to him and tries him to get to take the easy way out. 
A little bit farther on, Peter comes to him and tries to get him to take the easy way out, right? In Gethsemane, when Jesus says, with his own lips, isn't there another way to do this? If, if you could let this cup pass from me, right? So Jesus says what Satan says. Jesus says what Peter says. Jesus says it himself, so he rolls it around his mouth and he spits it out. And then Jesus comes to the cross, and exactly the same words are spoken. So in each case, the primary temptation for Jesus is to be a different kind of king. A king that's powerful, a king that destroys his enemies, a king that is oppressive, right? A king that victimizes. You remember in the Old Testament when the people wanted a king, and God says to them, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want a real king like everybody else says. So you want a real king that will tax you and take your men and make them into soldiers and get them killed and take your women and make them into concubines and you'll never see them again? That's what you want? Yeah, we want a king like everybody else. He's like, right? So again, the temptation to have a different kind of king. So they divided his garments, had assigned the king of the Jews, and then listen, they crucified him with two robbers, and those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads saying, You saved others, but you cannot save yourself, right? You said you would destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. That's the same as Satan said. Save yourself, come down from the cross. It's what Peter said. Save yourself, you'll never go to the cross. It's what Jesus says himself when he takes all the temptations of human beings upon himself. Save yourself, don't go to the cross. The very last thing, and in real time, as he's being ripped to shreds, save yourself, come down from the cross. This is always the constant temptation, the primary temptation that Jesus faces. Save yourself, come down from the cross. So what's so interesting about the icon is, when you just have kind of a basic look at this, Mary on the left, John on the right. Um, Just a couple of things as you read this, right? I I didn't look closely enough before I copied this and I had to shrink it down, but my guess is underneath Jesus' feet is that's Adam's skull. Jesus is traditionally crucified over Adam's grave, just as Jesus is traditionally crucified at the place where Abraham made the altar to sacrifice Isaac, Mount Zion, right? So this is is the place where it's Adam's grave, it's Isaac's grave. altar, and then Jesus, and you notice that in this one, um, I think if we look closely, his eyes are probably closed already, so he's already died, and yet he retains his nimbus, right, the halo, which at least in the east means his divinity never passes from him, and he never loses his holiness, and at the very least in the west means that Jesus was an innocent victim, right? He was uh, marked as one who was righteous, and then you have the bravery, um, and you know, you come to this if you've greatly suffered, you, you, you sort of come to a place in your life where I don't give a damn, right? You sort of have that, and then the, on the far side of that, there's some serenity. If I don't get to it, um, Alfred North Whitehead, you know, one of the um, best quotes ever, it said, I've got it in the end, which is the only simplicity to be trusted is a simplicity on the far side of complexity. The only life is the life beyond a broken heart, right? That's what's happening here, right? So there's um, life beyond a broken heart. You sort of have seen life as it's worse. Now, I woke up this morning reading, a, like sort of reading things as I'm, as I basically read the story of, of a kid who only killed a few people, 
as he tried to kill a lot of people in a school. And you sort of read how the evil that sort of possessed him and the progression of it and kind of what they found and, you know, torturing animals and threatening people and false attempts. And um, you kind of go, you know, people who don't believe in sort of raw evil that dominates people. We talk about possession, it's really sort of a domination where disorder becomes calculated. It's, a, it's, a, it's the most frightening thing. Well, all of that is sort of wrapped up in Christ, right? That's all sort of, when it says he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows, what that means is, is that this is the great opportunity to reset the universe. And so the cross then becomes the center of space and time. This is the axis mundi. This is the, this is the thing on which the world turns, right? It's the axis around which everything else evolves. Not just space, but also time. So we'll kind of get to all that. But that's all going on here in this. So Jesus has a nimbus. Jesus is dying. He's dying as the second Adam. He's dying as his mother tends him. He dies as one disciple at least remains faithful. The disciple, what was John? Which disciple was John? Was the disciple whom? Who he loved, right? So not the one who was most fiery, that's Peter. Not the one who was most clever, that's Judas. But the thing that endures even at the point of death is love, right? So, and even for John, well, you can't be, um, you can't be acting like everybody else. Pope Leo the Great once had a sermon about this where he said, um, you have to be more clever than the pagans. When you look at the crucifix, you can't see what the pagans see. You have to see his great, great, he said, you have to see his glory and our shame, right? And of course, the far side of that shame is these two being forgiven. Um, we'll do this in a week or two, but um, um, behold your mother, woman, behold your son, right? So in a sense, Jesus gives his mother as your mother, right? And Jesus gives John as the community, and he puts them back together as a family. There's a ton of stuff going on in those two things. But at the very least, you have Mary as you have Adam um, dead there, and you have Mary as the new Eve, right? Because everything gets a reset now, and she then becomes the apostle to the apostles, and the women will be the first ones at the tomb which is not the way you tell the story if you were trying to convince people because you, a woman's testimony didn't count in court, so you wouldn't go to women first. The great kind of joke of it is that Jesus talks to women first. If you're going to lie about that, if you're going to lie in the text, if you're going to write a story, this is not how you'd write the story because nobody would get the story. right? It kind of argues for the veracity of it. So all of that is happening just sort of as you read the icon. You all good? That was a little longer introduction than I thought. You still good? Everything okay? So what I want you to try to see is how Jesus engages people even when he's greatly disadvantaged. We've seen Jesus as a teacher. We've seen Jesus as a healer. We've just seen Jesus as Messiah. And now we see Jesus um, slowly dying in innocence, right? Unholy, we sang this morning, and prayed as if we were not broken. We prayed as if we were not broken. Now, that can go at least two ways poetry, how it works. It could be we act like we're not broken, like everything is okay. Or it could be that we're washed up in grace and we know that even though we're broken, we're not broken, that God doesn't see us as broken. 
holy we sang this morning, and we prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked the Christ figure hung, splayed on bloody, bloody beans above us. Devious God, dweller in the shadows, mercy on us. Immortal, cross-shattered Christ, your gentling grace down upon us. It's just the, this is a beautiful um, notion. It's the consummation of Christmas, where Jesus puts himself into our hands, and then, you know, of course, the crucifixion is that we manhandle him, right? So manhandling the deity, this great uh, title. So um, why stay with him? Well, they're good company, right? Um, Richard John Newhouse, some of you know him. He was an interesting guy because he was a Missouri Senate guy who became a Catholic priest in New York City and became wildly famous, um, first as a very strong voice in the civil rights movement, and so they said of him, um, and he started first things, he, he was, um, and I think he served a, a, a mostly African-American community in New York City. And they said when he died, and all the cameras came around, people wanted to know what all the bother was. And his congregation, or many people in his congregation, never really knew that he was world famous. They, he was, they said to a woman, she said, why are you here? And, they said, and then she said, well, he was just the priest who heard my confession. Right? So, and you might have, he was the guy who for years um, was the, uh, you know, at Christmas Eve when you go home and you can't sleep because you stayed up late. So you can turn on, I've heard people do this, Mass from the Vatican. And... Um, <laughs> There's always an American who explains to people what's going on, why they walk in a particular space, who goes where, what's happening now, why the incense, how about the cross, the different languages, who's coming. He was the guy who did that for many years until he died a few years ago. So anyway, this great uh, quote from him. And this is from, if you need a book to read for, for Lent, Death on a Friday Afternoon. It's a glorious book by Newhouse. It just is, you know. And the good thing is, is you can see the Lutheran in him, even as he became Catholic. And he sort of would say to people, I can't understand why you're still Lutheran. It's all, it's all sort of worked out. Now listen, just listen for the Lutheran bits in this. This is well after he's Catholic, right? When I come before the judgment throne, I will plead the promise of God in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I will not, now this is just going to blow up everything you think about your Catholic friends, because the two things people always say about Catholics is they believe in transubstantiation and they work their way to heaven. Okay, one, transubstantiation didn't bother Luther. Um, he was fine with it, unless you forced it on him. You can read the Babylonian captivity. But listen to this, um, before you're too quick to say about Catholics, um, they just work their ways to heaven. I will not plead any work that I have done although I will thank God that he's enabled me to do some good. I will plead no merits other than the merits of Christ, knowing that the merits of Mary and the saints are all from him. And for their company, their example, and their prayers throughout my earthly life, I will give everlasting thanks. I will not plead that I had faith, so a lot of sola fide talk over the 500 years, but listen to this. I will not plead that I had faith, for sometimes I was unsure of my faith. And in any event, that would be to turn faith into a meritorious work of my own. You're much more in danger of this when you're deciding for Christ than when you're sitting at Catholic Mass. <coughs> I will not plead that I held the correct understanding of justification by faith alone, 
although I will thank God that he led me to know ever more fully the great truth that much misunderstood formulation was intended to protect. Whatever little growth in holiness I've experienced, whatever strength I received from the company of the saints, whatever understanding I attained of God and his ways, these and all other gifts received I will greatly bring to the throne. But in seeking entry to the heavenly kingdom, I will look to Christ and Christ alone. And that's, of course, what you see in the icon. You see the fruition of this notion when Jesus had the high priestly prayer. And he said to people, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, and I in you. The Greek word for abide just means to stay where you're put. So you stay where you put. Wherever you're put, that's where you stay. Well, this is where Mary and John have been put, right? They've been put at the feet of Jesus. He's a rabbi. If he's your rabbi, you sit at his feet and learn. So part of what you see in this icon as you read it is that you see people who are utterly obedient to the end, right? So if your rabbi's feet are at eye level because he's just been crucified, you stay at your rabbi's feet. That's what's going on here. Um, Then two things, two and three to try to convince you that the cross is the center of the universe, so the center of space, right, and the center of history. It's the center of time. So you remember when Jesus later will give the Great Commission, and he says, Lo, I'm with you always, time, to the close of the age, right? So I'm always, I permeate time from end to end. And then... um, and space, Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You can't go anywhere and, 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 and escape him. He's always there waiting for you. In your worst moments, he's there for you. Um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's space. All authority in heaven and on earth, that's how you talk about space. Lo, I'm with you always, that's how you talk about time. So God is always with you in space and time. right? And you see that in the cross. Um, this is from Stanley Hauerwas, who's a bright boy, but not quite as, um, not quite as elegant and yet very true. Um, to say that Christians believe is mysterious invites the assumption that what we believe is not believable. In short, mystery suggests that what we believe defies reason and common sense. What we believe does defy reason and common sense, but yet I believe what Christians believe is most reasonable and common sense accounts. We have the way things are, right? And then this notion that we can't actually see unless Jesus is there. Like, so, you know, C.S. Lewis says, I, I, believe, in, I believe in God the way I believe in the, how the sun rises. Um, not that I believe in it, not just that I believe in its light, but that by its light, I see everything else as well, right? It's not just that the sun comes up. It's that you see everything else. It's not just that you believe in Jesus. It's that through Jesus, you see everything else. And this, then, is the great divide of the world, right? You see, right? You see things. It's the sermon this morning. You see things the way Jesus sees things, not the way the world sees things. It's a completely different hermeneutic, a different set of presuppositions for seeing the world. If you presume that people are great, educate the hell out of them, and then they'll believe and do everything right. But for 2,000 years or 4,000 years, however long you want to count history, that hasn't worked very well. Getting smarter hasn't made us better, even though being smarter is a good thing. Getting smarter hasn't made us better. 
that getting smarter in a lot of ways has made us worse. Nuclear weapons, for example, or how face recognition will work soon, or why you're all getting plastic surgery before you shoot your selfies. Just checking. <laughs> what? Okay, don't worry, we'll have a class on this next year. So, um, right? So does it just being smarter doesn't make you better. What makes you better is being able to love. And so uh, you um, know things because you know them in the light of Christ, right? The Christ who prays on the cross. I'm going to flip you because I always have more stuff than I think I can do. Just go to point three. This is sort of glorious stuff, right? Christians call them the triduum, the three most sacred days of the year. Uh, Monday, Thursday, when you get the mandatum. Friday that we call good. And then at the fourth paragraph, you know, and this is always the thing. We, we always want to move through our pain so quickly that we don't always learn from our pain. Some of you have suffered mightily here. Some of you are suffering right now. There are a range of things going on. But you remember the kind of the genius of Simone Weil, this French mystic, um, who said, you know, the modern world sees problems, sees pain as a problem to be solved, Right? So our pain is a problem to be solved. Um, Christians see, ask, what good might God bring from this pain? So um, don't rush to the conquest, right? And so don't, don't rush past this icon. This icon can make you uncomfortable if you actually read how people are crucified. You know, it's sort of, you know, they beat you till the skin comes off your bones and then they hang you up for a while, and they actually might beat you less if they want you to last longer. There's a famous story in Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He used to go out with the Roman armies, and they loved him because he recorded things so beautifully. You can still read it. They go out from Jerusalem with an army one day. Three days later, Josephus comes back, and he finds his slave, basically his butler, his servant, crucified and still alive, hanging there for three days. So they crucified him by mistake the day that he went out. And when he came back, you know, along the road, going places. So, I mean, you know, the horror of this being sort of exposed to the elements, naked, for all the world to see, right? And you would last as long as you can last. And real honestly, you can last a while if you're not too banged up when they hang you up, right? Jesus mercifully died soon, Um, not just from the physical things, but from the the burden of um, your sins and mine, right? So here's the point. Don't rush to the conquest. People always, you know, I had an old Nagel used to say to me, if you had to choose between Easter and Good Friday, you should always choose Good Friday. But it's inevitable people always choose Easter, right? No, I mean, Good Friday is the day it gets worked out. Easter is the announcement of it. Don't rush to the conquest. Stay a while with this day. Let your heart be broken by the unspeakably bad of this Friday we call good. Right? Next paragraph. Wherever the name comes from, let your present moment stay with this day. Stay a while in the eclipse of the light. So you remember it's going to go dark, right, before Jesus dies. Stay a while with the conquered one. There's time enough for Easter. By these three days, all the world is called to attention. Everything that is and ever was and ever will be, the macro and the micro, the galaxies beyond number and the microbes beyond notice, everything 
is mysteriously entangled with what happened. And what happens in these days, here it is, this is the axis mundi, the center upon which the cosmos turns. In the derelict one who cries from the cross is, as Christians say, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The life of all on this day died. Stay a while while it's dying. So you have this beautiful sense that Mary and John have both gotten the memo, right? They actually stick with Jesus. And you know this as you die, if you've been around dying people, the great consolation of, you know, it's one thing to sort of slip away into unconsciousness, which is the common and often um, helped along way which people die now. But there are people who, um, you know, there is another kind of death that's conscious to the end. And to sort of stay there with people as they die, uh, you know, it takes, it takes a bit of willpower because it's not a pleasant thing on so many levels, especially if you care for the person. Difficult professionally anyway, but if you care for the person, doubly so, right? But nevertheless, um, you know, people don't like to sleep alone and they don't like to die alone. And it's, uh, we're meant for community. So if you can hold on, that's a fabulous, fabulous thing that you do for somebody else. At three, we actually do say that God dies. This is utterly annoying for the same people who don't like to say that God is born. And yet Theotokos, Mary is Theotokos, Theo, God, Tokos, mother of God. Just in the same way. If we don't say that God was born and if we don't say that God was died, we, that God died, we haven't come to the grips with the fullness of the incarnation. Right Now it's complicated because Jesus is a one-off and he's completely human and he's completely divine and that's in one person. So it's one person that has two natures or two essences, right? That God takes on human flesh and that God still has human flesh. So you'll meet Jesus in the flesh. Like Thomas, if you want, I suppose, maybe if you wait in line, you'll be able to put your fingers in, you know, in the way that people... You know, touch all kinds of other things on vacation, you know. You'd be able to... Jesus still has his wounds, right? Bernard of Clairvaux is in the bulletin here somewhere talking about where is his love for... Show, where, where, is, where is Jesus' love for us shown out more gloriously than in his wounds? Right. So that's what's going on here. Um, there's nothing more central to Christianity than what happened on Good Friday. In fact, if you will, it's crucial. In fact, the word crucial comes from the Latin word crux, meaning cross. Here's the thing. This is how simple life gets, right? If what Christians say about Good Friday is true, that God was born and God died, mercifully, without exacting revenge, in love, for you, as gift. If what Christians say about Good Friday is true, then it is quite simply the truth about everything. Next paragraph, two lines. Good Friday is the key to understanding what Dante called the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. Right? For most Christians, the last words of Jesus from the cross are encountered in the liturgy of Holy Week. But thinking about Good Friday is not just for Holy Week. Good Friday is for every day of the year. Last paragraph here. 
the opening of the gospel according to St. John, which we've been reading. So we've been following Jesus' encounters in John's gospel. The opening of the gospel according to St. John declares that the word became flesh. In these last words of the word into descent, into death, we come upon the perfect sound of silence, a silence of the completion toward which all good words tend, right? And this is then, it is finished. And then this great rejoicing, it is finished, but it is not over. To accompany him to his end is to discover our new beginning. So the most enlightened people are at this particular moment, at the moment of the icon, are the Blessed Virgin Mother and the beloved disciple, St. John. At least people beyond number have for 2,000 years found this to be true, right? Even better is to discover why it may be also the case for you. Now, just a couple of quick things, because time you know, flies always. Um, even this last couple of weeks, I ran into somebody who wanted to give me an earful about um, the crucifixion being child abuse, um, or the father abusing the son. We are so impoverished in the way that we understand we're so impoverished in the way that we understand the Holy Trinity. People, can, you know, people should just be quiet who haven't put any time into trying to understand, for example, the perichoresis of the Trinity. But you have these three people who dance together, who play along, who have a single will, but whose will is executed by each doing the thing necessary. And people, it's such an easy thing. I mean, gee whiz. You know, firemen, policemen, soldiers, people are like, human sacrifice, and why would you do that? And people to die, and it's so barbarian. Really? For any country that raises an army, right, or has policemen, or, you know, a fire department. For me, 9-11 is the great example. In fact, there was just the anniversary of a priest who, you know, Springsteen, up the stairs, who um, they all knew they were going to die. And they still go, right? So, you know, don't say that this is somehow, you know, inconceivable. It's conceivable on every level every day, right? When you draft young men and women to go to war, it's somebody dying in your place for you, right? We do it all the time. And, you know, you can watch the news tonight, and there'll be some good story on the news. Or some mother will... You know, a kid will go through the ice today and some mother will jump in to save them. Or, you know, some next-door neighbor will run up the stairs and pull somebody out of a fire, or catch them when they jump out of a window. It's the same story over and over and over again. So this, you know, you shouldn't allow yourself to be sort of beat up by stupid people. There, I just have to shorten it up because we don't have much time, right? <laughs> <clears throat> the next thing sort of at, at number five is the whole... Um, and this is the notion that we just, from the notion that we just sort of slimed up from the mud and all life is the same and speciesism and there's no difference between human being and animals and you're really all animals. One of the um, consequences of this is this making peace with death. Yeah, no. And here's the reason why. Because you're not going to die. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're like, I've often drawn this for you, but you know, God is like, you know, it's, uh, you know, God is like, like this, you know. But you're like this. You have a start but no end. So you're a ray, right? You're actually not going to die. You are going to change neighborhoods. 
But at some point, I mean, when you have a child, the child lives forever. When you were born, you live forever. That's who you are. And we can't um, suggest that in some sense that this is just kind of normalcy. All right, I can't do more, but I do want to just push you to the end because I want you to just play with this a little bit, okay? So go to 11, um, and then just go to the next page. This, and I just sort of want to give you this. We'll come back and do a little of this next. Uh. So do you, see the, do you see the page that starts by saying, the ancient Christian fathers, do you see that page? The ancient, second to the last page. The ancient Christian fathers spoke of the Christ event as the recapitulation of the entire human drama. So whatever you were doing, Jesus comes and does it better and redeems it all. In this one life, all lives are summed up. In the eternal present of this one life, the past is encompassed, the future is anticipated, and the life of every man and every woman is most truly lived. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Not a way among other ways, a truth among other truths, or a life among other lives, but the way of all ways, the truth of all truths, and the life of all lives. People are ashamed to say that. You shouldn't be ashamed to say that. doesn't mean, and we've done this for two or three years, it doesn't mean you execute violence or vengeance or oppression or victimize other people because of what you believe. None of that, right? That's where Christianity always goes wrong. But you can say this. It means quite simply and solemnly that this is your life. This is my life. And we have not come to our senses. This is the argument that Christians make. We have not come to our senses. We can't see. We can't love. We can't choose. We have not come to our senses until we sense ourselves in the life and the death of Christ. This is the Axis Monday. And then this great thing, just skip one and go down a little farther. Stay a while, don't hurry, for we know the risen Lord only through Christ and crucified. The philosopher, these are words to live by. I mean, this is like, this helps me, and well, this is like one of the top ten things I know. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said, the only simplicity to be trusted is the simplicity to be found on the far side of complexity. This is why children and Einstein are the same. Children haven't worked through the complexity. Einstein is on the far side of complexity. So they, talk, they both talk simply about things. Brilliant people are people who can explain complex things in a way that anybody can understand them. If they can't do that, they're either not brilliant or they don't know what they're talking about. Right? The only simplicity to be trusted is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. You've done the work. And then things become clear. Jesus does the work of the crucifixion, and things become clear. The only joy to be trusted is the joy on the far side of a broken heart. The only life to be trusted is life on the far side of death. That's our story. We're sticking to it. Got to go. Here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you soon. Wednesday for dinner, and um, if anybody wants to be in front of this grace thing, let me know, please, okay? All right, thanks. Cheers.